All right, we're back. And we're back. Talking about movies on movie podcast Evangelion. Yes. Uh, today we're actually talking about two movies. Two double episodes. Same length, two films. Uh-huh. Same length, two films. Uh, and what's... So you were actually the person who suggested that we talk about these two together, so... I was. Um, because... Now, I might come off sounding like pretentious perhaps you or never or or just like i don't know i i i honestly can't say whether i'm on to something here but i felt like it would be a good pairing because these are two films mm-hmm. that came out in the 2021-22 awards season I guess the 2021 awards season. And they're both films directed by women, one by a longtime director, one by a first time director, mm-hmm. uh, one by an actress, one by just a director. Uh, we should say Maggie Gyllenhaal yeah. directed The Lost Daughter. Mm-hmm. And Jane Campion directed Power of the Dog. And my thought was that The Lost Daughter was an examination of female interiority or a female's interiority Mm -hmm. and the power of the dog was an examination of a male's interiority can you for uh all of our dedicated listeners no because that's exactly what i was going to ask you to do i will not be defining interiority it was your idea all right fuck my life okay well i mean at least this way we'll know that we're talking about the same no it's it's something that we have to do i was you're hoping to. I was not hoping have to deal that I was it. hoping to. I had to define MacGuffin uh, last time and yeah. soy dialogue. So yeah. <laughs> I'm making you do all the labor because you are the female. Yeah, of this typical. Podcast. Yeah, sounds right. Um, okay, so what I mean by interiority is like the inner life of the character that is maybe not revealed through the text entirely. Mm-hmm. Somewhat revealed through subtext, but are we talking about more about how it's uh, how it's revealed in the visual language, or do you mean text literally as this stuff doesn't appear in the script? And it was I guess I mean dialogue eyes? in in the in dialogue. dialogue. I yeah, should say okay. dialogue. Yes. So it doesn't necessarily I mean, the dialogue indicates it, but many other things indicate it: mm-hmm. expressions, mm-hmm. actions, okay. um, even editing. Editing, yes, exactly. Uh, music, even. Um, so, I'd like to talk about that. Yeah. What, what we think about that. Well, should we... And we should say... No, go ahead. Sorry. I was just wondering if we should focus on one or the other. Or yes, just... I think we should We should take them one at a time. Okay. Um, why don't we start with Lost Daughter? Would love to start with The Lost Daughter. And then Daughter. we'll move on to Power of the Dog. I, I guess a side note, I, before we really get into The Lost Daughter... If you haven't already, I would really encourage you, and I think you have at least, uh, Dr. Movies, mm-hmm. you've looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes and oh. saw the oh. critic versus audience <laughs> score, which is really something to, to it, behold. It, people hate this movie. People uh, hate this movie. Generally, even, people. Even people who I think would maybe know better to, than to yeah i mean a lot of the reviews the audience reviews i saw uh and like guys we should not be looking at rotten tomatoes it's a stupid site that should be 
destroyed from the internet. But there's a lot, a lot of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are like, oh, I love Olivia Coleman, probably because they saw her in like The Crown or maybe even The Favorite. Maybe even The Favorite. And, or maybe even one of the Brit Box, you know, BBC. On the BBC. Mystery. Channel 4. Channel 4 Sky Network shows. <laughs> Um, you know, and they like her for that whatever reason, and they come in and they see Maggie Gyllenhaal, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I, I remember when she did more stuff. I like I her." Batman. Ba- Batman. And Rachel, and uh, she is the titular, not the titular Rachel, but the the Rachel that is spoken of, yes. that is growled of. Growl and up. and they they're they're excited for the next Olivia Coleman Maggie Gyllenhaal joint, and they got a movie that they found slow that they felt like nothing was happening in Yeah, nothing happened in this it was slow it was boring uh the main character was so unlikable i didn't understand why she was doing what she was doing or why she didn't right. do certain she was, things uh, yes exactly and i and i guess maybe this is a better way to introduce what i see as the concept of interiority because everything that was happening in the lost daughter is happening inside of olivia coleman very little plot happens in The Lost Daughter. It's like, more akin to the experience of reading literary fiction. That's yes. who cares about the plot. There's a couple of things going on, but just enough to drive character development and introspection. Correct. A woman, Olivia Coleman, arrives in an Italian lake town mm-hmm. of some sort. It's beautiful because it's, it's Italy. It's, she's on vacation. She's on sabbatical from her mm-hmm. academic job, mm-hmm. immediately runs into Ed Harris, who's like old as fuck, but still looking kind of hot. Oh, what are you? Well, let's talk about that Ed- for a second. <laughs> sidebar, 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 sidebar. Ed Harris. Let's talk about Ed Harris. I'm going to talk about someone else when you, just to cover this topic. Um, J.K. Simmons in uh. That one movie. Whiplash. In Whiplash. Yeah, you think he's hot? <laughs> he's very hot he's in Whiplash. Hot. So Ed Harris has always kind of had that like it's tough older man Tough hotness. older man. I actually just last night from when we were recording this, I, I watched uh, History of Violence and Ed Harris is in that mm-hmm. and he looks the same and that yes. movie was made in 2003. Yeah, and if you go back and look at an Ed Harris movie from the 90s or even 80s, it basically it's looks the same. It's a very powerful that, so. ability. He is... He is one of the few actors, and it's of a time when, like, actors were, like, very protective of their masculinity, despite Mm. the fact that acting is, like, a very, like, in many ways, effeminate thing to do. Because of emotions? Because of emotions. Yeah, you have to be very emotive and vulnerable and, you know, pay attention to other people. Um, Not masculine at all. Not masculine at all. But, you know, he was of that sort of era. Like, because he's, I mean, he's in, you know, fucking Glengarry Glen Ross with all the tough dudes, you know? Um, Wow, this is a big Ed Harris tangent. But anyways, Ed Harris is in the movie. He's good. Part of the reason why Ed Harris works is that he is, in my opinion, is attractive to the audience. Even if you're not like, oh, I want to fuck Ed Harris, there is something so warm and caring about him that you trust him. True. You However, give him the trust. I would say something that I think the way he's deployed in this movie is he actually has somewhat a similar background to Olivia Coleman mm. in that he has also sort of forsaken his children. He's, he's sort of like abandoned them as men are wont to do. As men are wont to do. More than women. And we don't really raise our eyebrows at Ed Harris having done that. Exactly. 
because as a old literature professor of mine once said, the uh, foundation of literature is the absent father. Don't know if that's true, but... I don't know if that's it, true, but it sounds good. It, it sounds fucking so fucking sick. It's the type of thing you hear as an undergrad and you're like, fuck. Like, wow, I'm so, I get it now. Uh, yeah, whoa. Um, King Lear. Um, <laughs> but so... But he, his interiority is a bit of a contrast to Olivia Coleman's because he doesn't seem to think about it at all. He's like, yeah, I, you know, did, I, I haven't been around my kids in years, but yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm, like that, like that sucks. It, like, you know? well, like maybe I should have lived differently, but I'm not really thinking about it that and, much. And she sort of judges him. Mm-hmm. She's that. kind of taken aback She's, by yeah. how straightforward he is about right. it because throughout the movie, it's it is revealed to the audience slowly through flashbacks, mm-hmm. through you know any variety of devices, what's actually gone on with Olivia Coleman, and it's she doesn't explicitly say anything until I think towards the very end. It's, is when it's she explains like the, the what's going on. Final act of the movie is sort of yeah. beginning, and she's just like, "I left my children." Yes. Yeah. Um, so we spoiler alert. Well, Olivia Coleman left her children. She left her children in in probably the best scene of the film is when she describes to Dakota Johnson, who is Uh, well used and finally. I mean, I know we disagree on this, but I am I'm I'm a Dakota Johnson defender. I loved her in Suspiria. Suspiria converted me. She is very well used in this movie, um, and she does a good job. And in what I think is the best scene of the film, Olivia Coleman tells her that she has abandoned her children. Very moving performance from Olivia Coleman. It's fucking acting and, up a storm the whole time. And honestly, in that scene, from what I remember, or at least how it, it occurred to me, was the reveal, the emotional reveal wasn't so much about I left my children. It was more her telling Dakota Johnson, you're always going to feel this way. This feeling of well, misery isn't going to go away. Well, actually, so I think we might be talking about two different scenes. Okay. Because the first time she tells Dakota Johnson that she left her children, she's not so much ashamed of the fact that she left them. She's ashamed of the fact that she enjoyed leaving them. That it was... Right, and is this, is this also when Dakota Johnson asks her, why did you go back? Or like, when? She's like, when I was ready? When I felt like right. it? I only went back when I genuinely missed my children it right. wasn't about i need to be a good mom i need to be there mm-hmm. and then in the climax of the film dakota asks her you know is is life ever going to get easier you know is, are these feelings that i'm feeling ever going to pass and olivia coleman's like no and by the way i stole your doll but let's go back to the doll <laughs> olivia coleman's on the beach trying to relax and these rowdy americans come onto the beach and these rowdy uh inappropriate beautiful beautiful americans the the camera lingers Mm -hmm. on dakota johnson's body on the body and 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 that and shows us what olivia coleman is fixated on yes which is the body of dakota johnson um because we find out that in flashbacks there's another actor who plays the younger Olivia Coleman, who's quite good. Jesse Buckley is, I yes, think. Yes, she's been coming up. She's been coming up. She's been yeah. great in everything I've seen her she's in. She's very good. Um, 
and she she has a good body. And Olivia Coleman doesn't have as good a body as she Ooh, used to. Because Olivia Coleman is a middle aged woman. Yes. And that's just kind of Sorry. the reality. No, it's actually there's nothing even to apologize for. Because <laughs> I think that the way that even the movie approaches it, Olivia Coleman as a middle aged woman in whatever shape she is in is still either projects and maybe we can have a conversation about our interpretation of this, but either is genuinely attractive to a variety of men true, or she is projecting that onto them and, and reading into what they're saying. She is constantly, the character is trying to be in command. Yes. In, uh, control. in control and in command of anything and everything that she can be. And like, that's the thing is like, this character is not a coward. Given every opportunity to assert herself, she does. From the very beginning, you know, she's asked to move on the beach. She's like, can we move so our entire family, yeah, can can play together in this one area? And she's like, no, I was here first. I don't want to move. And the woman's like, what the fuck? You're being a bitch. In the scene where Ed Harris, he comes over to her apartment that she's renting and she's been messing with the doll, trying to clean it, whatever. And it's on the porch And she doesn't really make any effort to hide it from Ed Harris. You can kind of tell she doesn't want him to see it. But she's not. When it's happening, she's like, "All right, that's what's going on." Like, I'm. I guess I'll face that head on. Yeah. She asks a group of rowdy teenagers at the theater to move. I would never. Uh, I know most of us wouldn't, but she does. But the thing is, in almost every case, when she's requesting control or like asserting trying to get control she is not able to control other people put her down those other teenagers people down. make fun of her they pretend like nothing is going on when the actual management comes in uh, i think dakota johnson might call her a bitch i don't remember yeah the, the dakota johnson's sister or sister-in-law uh, calls her played a bitch by and... the actress whose name i don't know but she's know, in she's succession yeah she plays carolina in there and she's That's right she's great she immediately assesses olivia coleman's body i, I think okay so we haven't even brought in the goat, which is the fact that this is based on an Elena Ferrante book. Right. Uh, an author for whom we are both large fans. Yeah. I mean, she is one of the greatest living writers that we have, as far as I know. She's going. fantastic. And um, it, and this is a beautiful rendering. I, I have not read her novel of mm. this or whatever short story it is. Oh, sorry, I don't know. But um, We're here to talk about movies, not about books. I, I Yeah, fuck books, nerds. Uh, but I did read, because I am a nerd, um, My Brilliant Friend. Mm-hmm. This seems like a beautifully rendered it's true to her spirit, the spirit of her prose. The spirit I would of say. the feminine interiority. Yes, because that's what uh, Ferrante, I think, is concerned with: is feminine interiority and female relation, like the way females relate to each other. To one another, it's much less about how women are relating to men. Yes, yeah, there there, there are almost no men. I mean, they're like there, men, there's but Ed all Harris, on the periphery. there's, there's the husband, Harris, right, there's, there's the the affair partner, and that's. A, about it. There's the affair partner, and then there's her. Well, there's there's two husbands, there's two affair partners, right. and there's Ed Harris. Correct, but they're like they, we we barely see them. They're not the most we see is Skarsgård, who is incredible. Yeah, it's just perfectly yeah. used. Thank you to Maggie for using your husband for this. Yeah, I I love excellent. Peter Skarsgård. Uh, Peter Peter Skarsgård. Uh, he's great. Every scene that he's in is like cringy, but like. 
also you like see why she's horny for him. I so uh, a little bit about me in the most vague sense possible Mm -hmm. i went to grad school briefly Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. i i still very much feel like i have an affinity for academia sure and so during these as you know those scenes are unfolding between you know young olivia coleman Mm -hmm. and this professor guy Mm -hmm. my thought was like i know I, I feel like I've kind of been in situations like that where there's like, well, like maybe like this guy is kind of a weird loser, but he's also really smart. He's and at he's the top in, of his field. He's at the top of his field. And he read game. her work and thinks it's brilliant. And thinks it's brilliant. Nothing more erotic yes. than that. Well, especially to like a person who's like, what is he? She's like a Keats scholar. Or yeah. Y- oh, Yeats, Yeats, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just like, oh, and there's this great, and she's translating Yeats into Italian. And this is far more fulfilling to her than any sort of parenting thing that Correct. we see going Correct. on. Correct. Oh, and the <laughs> thing the funny is, like, the movie lays it on a little thick with this, is that, like, any interaction she has with her kids, her kids are just being little shitheads. Like, they're just, like, <laughs> what in not, particular? Yeah, they're, like, not paying attention to her. They're just, like, slapping her they're in the face. They're hitting her they're in the face screaming. so much. They're screaming. They're, <laughs> yes. uh, there is one scene, however, I think it's, like, a, a dinner table scene, and it's very brief. There might not even be a whole lot of dialogue in it, but that scene is very sweet and it's mm-hmm. showing it's it's interspersed in a place in the film where i think that the impression is that olivia coleman's thinking to herself well it wasn't all bad right because it, cause Cause it, it wasn't, wasn't all bad of course not. Of, okay how could it be um although those kids were pretty fucking annoying the kids were really fucking annoying but she like that's that's, that's where annoying. that's why she's remembering those things because she's faced with this you know she is seeing this other mother who is struggling in yeah. the way that she did. And she's relating to her. Perhaps over-identifying. Perhaps over-identifying, but in some ways, I think, or the narrative seems to be, that Olivia Coleman does not feel that this other mother is suffering enough. Interesting. So, so is that, that the is motivation it. behind the doll? Exactly. That's the motivation for her stealing the doll, which is that this, this child of Dakota has lost her doll, at the beach and is now, you know, inconsolable mm. and driving Dakota insane. And Olivia Coleman has found the doll, but will not return it because she doesn't, I think, want the child to stop being insane because I think she feels vindictively that this young, beautiful woman who she used to be should suffer as much as she did. Interesting. That I, is I, my I like reading that, of it. What's your reading? I like that angle a lot. I hadn't thought of it like that. I, I think I probably viewed it a little more shallowly or directly, I suppose, in that I saw it as there's parts of her flashbacks with her kids where her her bratty daughter, the youngest one, the daughter has somehow destroyed a a childhood doll of of her. And she's like, why she like wrote all over the face and she's like, why would you do that? Like, this was really precious to me. What's the deal here? And so for me, I almost saw it as retribution of where like i don't think that like the the connections are 100 percent made but it's she's she's trying to she sleeps with this doll she tries to clean it up there's a something there so this gets sort of i don't know maybe it gets back to the word interiority where it's just like the connections are not 100 percent made and i'll tell you why they aren't because this is a movie for adults and i would like you everyone who is writing your little angry reviews on rotten tomatoes to consider the fact that maybe you're not trying hard enough you're not trying hard enough to access to engage with this material and access your emotional your emotional interiority (laughs) you pieces of shit 
is what I would say. Um, well, he said it now. I've said it now. I've said it. And she and she's she's cares for the doll. She redresses it. She cleans it out. It's got like gross like worms she's inside got, of it. It's got gross worms inside of it. Wait, what's going is... on? And that's actually something that I really liked about the film is what you're talking about of like the connections aren't hundred percent made. There's tons of stuff that's in there just almost as like an an item of interest, yes. but we're not focusing on that. Like there's I don't think that she lays it on by she I mean Maggie Gyllenhaal. I don't mm-hmm. think that she lays it on too thick with the doll whatever like right it's not like oh and you see a scene later where it's like covered in bugs and yeah like, now she's really <laughs> like because i could see that sort of thing happening in a different movie uh let's talk about maggie gyllenhaal's like directorial choices for a moment mm. um for a first time director i'm sorry i think this isn't like fucking fantastic it's phenomenal uh it's shocking i think it's very much an actor's director uh, all the shots are like mid to close up. She very rarely pulls wide because she's very interested in the expressions, the reactions. She'll sometimes she'll linger on a reaction or linger on a, a you know someone who's not speaking for much longer than I think like you know maybe mm-hmm. conventional editing would. Um, she'll jump forward in the dialogue sequence while the image is still with a different, you know, part. The color is very good. I mean, I just feel like there's so many ways. And she also wrote this. She adapted this. Oh, she's yeah, the she's the, the screenwriter the of this. Wow. So I, I just think with a with the source material, despite the fact that it's so strong for being Ferrante, I think this so easily could have become like a lifetime movie or like a BBC, you know, masterpiece theater type mm-hmm. thing with, you know, just like sort of unimaginative color grading and just sort of unimaginative just everything is that you could really make this movie in a very sort of rote boring way mm. and I just it's not you know it doesn't feel Netflixy despite the fact that it's released on Netflix I would love to talk Netflix about that look. because yeah. the first movie that we talked about for our podcast was Red Notice which yes. we felt was so Netflixy it's so Netflixy. Netflixy look it had the Netflixy colors yeah. and a kind of TV quality mm-hmm. to it this is cinematic it's very cinematic and it and it's the type of script and project that could so easily have become a tv film which is like and there have been good tv films but like this is not a tv film mm-hmm. this is a real movie i didn't even see it in theaters and i felt that way um so great job great job general. everyone who worked on this yeah her interiority her inner life shines through it's legible without any crutch from like an overweening script. There's no voiceover in this. There's no voiceover. And they very easily could have gone that way. Very easily. There's plenty of room for it. You know, uh, a lot of people found the movie slow. They're wrong. Every, everyone. I don't actually think they're wrong. Well, it it is slow, but it's, but I don't mean that as an, yeah, that's not negative. Like things can be slow. Thank you. You know what? Yes, exactly. It's slow, but that's why I'm, but as I'm watching it, it doesn't feel slow as in a punishment. It feels slow as in it's taking its time. It's taking its time because it's, it earns its time. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, what, is there anything else we'd like to say about this? We can come back to it as we talk about Power of the Dog, but. I think something that we've kind of already talked about it and maybe this is, is a skip, but I was really fascinated with the, depiction of Olivia Coleman and and men in this and mm-hmm. 
maybe I was overreading it, uh, or maybe I was reading it correctly, since I am also a woman. But every what? interaction that she had with men was not overtly sexually charged, but there always was a something. When You're the right. younger You're affa- when right. Dakota Johnson's affair partner, they're sitting at a cafe and eating, and he makes a remark about her physical appearance in a complimentary way. There's a scene later on with uh, Dakota Johnson's husband and they're in a parking lot and she's trying to go get her car oh and oh, so cringe so good. so so cringe and and so captivating to watch yeah. because you're watching these men look at her and laugh at her in their heads yes. and it's like but these- she's clearly reading it a little bit differently the movie sets her up to be right so often mm-hmm. but it's like just because you're right doesn't mean doesn't mean shit doesn't mean shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, your kids are little shits, but like, sorry, bummer. Like, yeah, uh, these guys are kind of assholes, but like, they're not sitting on your car. They're sitting on their car and you just think it's your car because you have like, something's going on, you know? Something's going on. You're not really paying attention. You're kind of confused. You are assuming that whatever these two fucking assholes are doing, that they're doing to something of yours. It's it's a good, so this is something that maybe it's like a little bit of a live wire, but it does a good, the movie does a good job of depicting female resentment. Interesting. Please say more. And I mean Uh, that in a positive way. Yeah. I, I just think that's, it's not often a, I mean like female stories, female you know, female-centered emotions or experiences are not really centered in film to nearly the extent that men's are. Um, and I think, you know, much has been said of white male resentment in much, the last much, much has been said. Uh, fucking five years, and, like, we're all fucking tired of it. But you know what hasn't really been talked about a lot is female resentment. You know, there's a lot of female victimhood. There's a lot of, you know, like su- the sort of suffering, tragic female figure throughout literature. But they're, you know, where are the Alanis Morissettes? Where are they? Yeah, I, seriously. I mean, like, where, you know, where are they? Um, it's not really a film conversation, but I've sort of been wondering, like, what, where, like why haven't we had a Alanis Morissette since the 90s? Like, I don't know who that who the heir to her particular yeah. sort of. I feel like we're ready for that. We're absolutely ready. Female resentment rendered beautifully female judgment female judgment of others the female gaze on display absolutely i mean in so much as the female gaze can really ever exist i i don't know if you've watched this uh, video essay by Lindsay ellis but we love her we love her and there's a i can't remember which one it is but she talks about the female gaze and the fact that because cinema has historically been male-dominated and it was largely male directors and people who, those were the folks, men, Mm -hmm. establishing what the gaze is. Mm -hmm. And so anything that is, quote-unquote, the female gaze is still often using the language of the male gaze. Uh, I don't know if you read the Andrea Long Chu, Emily Ratajkowski interview. I didn't, but but you keep telling me to. I do keep telling you to because it's pretty good. And something they talk about is how the female gaze, part of it incorporates women looking at men looking at women Mm. or women imagining men looking at women Mm. and like putting themselves into the perspective of the male Mm -hmm. and looking at another woman and imagining how a man would look at her. Mm. 
and, and so sort of then, comparing still, themselves. So it is yeah. still iterative of the male gaze. And yeah. then I would like to add one more thing that I think comprises maybe a, a hypothetical female gaze that I've uh, sort of hypothesized about, which is that the female gaze maybe comprises an awareness of danger that the male gaze does not. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was my feeling watching the scene that we were just discussing with the guys in the car was like, there is a, a level of anxiety and yeah. she is ultimately, she's totally fine. Nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes even close to happening. And these guys don't care about this woman. Like mm-hmm. they don't give a shit, but she, there is an element of fright of, I don't know how I'm going to have to yes. deal with this. So an awareness and an assessment of danger, but also an awareness and assessment of sexual, of male sexual interest, mm. which is maybe, you know, part of what we talked about before, but you know, there's a scene where Ed Harris is like sort of hitting on her, but he's like not, he's not being super overt. He's, he, yeah, he's like, he's like maintaining plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. And then she says like, well, can I finish my dinner? And he's like, Oh, okay. And then he walks away. And then there's this, this sort of moment where she's like, Oh, but maybe I want that attention back. I don't know how yeah. you read it, but she goes yeah. over and then is just sort of like makes a sexually suggestive comment mm-hmm. to him and walks away as if yeah. to say like, I know what you were doing, by the way. You're sexually interested in me. Yeah. Um, you didn't, you didn't fool me. Yeah. I've been around long enough to know when a man is sexually interested in me. I think mm-hmm. that is also something that the female gaze comprises. That's a great point. I, this is very insightful. Of you. Is, Thank you for sharing. This is what, the content you can expect. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. So, so I think we loved the we lost loved, daughter. We loved the lost daughter. Uh, I think we can talk about it a little more in relation to the next movie that we'd like to move on to, which is Power of the Dog. The Power of that Doggy. Jane Campion's newest directorial effort. Uh, I don't know. I have not seen her most famous film. The Piano? Yes. Which I also haven't seen it, Fuck, unfortunately. So sorry, guys. But I have seen a movie that I would just like as a sidebar to recommend to uh, what audience we may have, a movie called In the Cut, which is one of Mark Ruffalo's earliest films. And it was sort of marketed as a sort of like sexy, single white female style 90s thriller. Um, It has a really interesting color grading, all sorts of things. But what I think is so fascinating about In the Cut is it takes a woman in um, Meg Ryan who her sort of entire oeuvre is romantic comedies, right? Mm-hmm. And in in all of these Meg Ryan movies, the sort of like central plot is her yearning for love or for male companionship. And it flips it. And all of a sudden Meg Ryan is accosted by these men who want her sexually. And every sexual encounter she has is sort of threatening and nauseating to her. Ladies... Have you ever had a threatening sexual Have encounter? Have you ever had a threatening sexual And so I, I think it's actually like, it, it's it's a weird movie. Interesting. It's weird. Interesting. I, I, I can't it, recommend to. it highly enough. I think like it's not, it, it's it's weird. Like it's, it's maybe, I, I guess you might say uneven, you know, um, mm-hmm. but boy, is it interesting. In the cut, folks. Check out Jane Campion's In the Cut. But we're not here to talk about Jane Campion's In the Cut. We're here to talk about Jane Campion's Power of the Dog. Which is also a literary adaptation. It's based on... It is. Yes. So we're, and so we're not only talking about two movies directed by women, but two movies directed by women that are also adaptations of Correct. existing works. Fuck, I don't know if she wrote the screenplay to this one. Um, I can find out. Let's take a look. Um, 
Power of the Dog. So, would we call this a Western? Yes, I would okay. say this is, yeah, this is a Western. It's a Western. Um, I, a little thing I came up with, and I was sort of pretty proud of myself for saying, was I think this is kind of like if Patricia Highsmith wrote a Western, in the sense that it's it's got queerness in it. It's got a sort of sadistic quality. Um, it's about the sort of, it is about the sort of inner lives of the people that um, it's talking about, but also it has sort of like a, a, a plotty, a plotty nature to it. It's like, you know, um, there are, there are hidden motivations and like uh, thing designs that people have on each other, you know, um, which is very, I think, Patricia Highsmith-esque. I loved this movie. I don't know if you felt differently. I, lo- I, like, I love this movie as well. I-, I wasn't like, I wasn't like, this is so, this is a tour de force, but I was like, this is a good movie. I also was like, this is good. And then honestly, the scene that changed my mind about the goodness of it was probably the uh, the scene that ha- takes place in the Glen where Benedict Cumberbatch is bathing in the pond mm. slash river with Bronco Henry's handkerchief or right. scarf. There was there was just something really magical about the way that that moment was handled with the especially in relation to the sun then discovering the kind of shrine that was there and i felt that at that moment at that point like the film had officially kind of stated its thesis absolutely it does it's it's so i'm going to come back to that moment but let me set it up which is so what we have is benedict cumberbatch and jesse plemons Jesse Plemons and uh, Jesse Buckley from Lost Daughter were in uh, uh, Charlie Kaufman, uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, a Netflix film. They co-starred together. Really excellent movie. That would be re- my recommendation. I would I would love to see that. I just watched Adaptation a couple days ago. It's, it oh, you got to check that one out. Excellent. But that's a complete digression. Great movie about screenwriting. But let's, 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 oh, and Nick Cage, probably one of his best performances. I keep hearing that. It's so fucking good. It's so funny. All right. But we got to, we, 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 we see, and a great Chris, Chris uh, Cooper performance too, but we got to, we got to move on. So. So Jesse Plemons, I'm sorry we don't know the names of any of these people, but Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch are cowhands who have a a, a ranch. Mm-hmm. And they've been yeah, yeah, yeah. close enough. To they've been happened. fairly successful with this ranch. They've also had this other business partner named Bronco Henry, who Benedict Cumberbatch loves. Literally. Literally. But we don't know that. We just know that he really respects him. Well, we know, we learn that Bronco Henry is the person, and this becomes a, a large topic of conversation in a variety of scenes. Bronco Henry is the person who taught Benedict Cumberbatch the trade, essentially. Correct. The yeah. trade, and they, they, they use the, driving. the phrase, or I think like the, the son says, did Bronco Henry teach you how to ride? And there is something so incredible about the son's lines in this that are layered. They're Cody so layered. Smith McPhee oh, a, he kills does a it. great job as the son of Kristen Dunst, who Jesse Plemons 
marries and brings on to the ranch um, because she has shown him a kindness. And he's lonely. And he's and lonely. And she's lonely. And she's lonely. They're both lonely. She's a widow. He's a lonely man. He almost seems like kind of simple in the parlance of that time. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, and and Benedict Cumberbatch is a real fucking asshole. He's a beast to this guy. He's a he's a, he's a beast. Well, he keeps calling Jesse Plemons fatso. Keeps calling Jesse Plemons his brother. Fatso. Yeah. So um, not cool, man. I loved Benedict Cumberbatch's voice in this. I think he really stuff. avoided the sort of like whale partner, you whale, know, like what? Western voice. Everyone does. Everyone does a great. Benedict job. Cumberbatch's American accents in general are spectacular he's i'm a great. big fan of benedict cumberbatch I, he gets weird hate i don't agree with it i think he's great yeah he i think what it is is he plays unlikable characters a lot and just like there's a lot of baby brains out there who are like are like that means he's an asshole and he's it's just a mean like, guy mm. that guy was mean he brings kirsten dunst onto this ranch to marry Jesse Plemons, and immediately benedict cumberbatch is like fuck this new state of affairs i do not want these two people mm-hmm. this effeminate son who like does macrame of Kirsten Dunst and Kirsten Dunst, this sort of like alcoholic woman on the sad girl on my ranch. In my house. In my house. With my brother taking him away from Mm -hmm. me. Yeah, taking away my brother. I've lost Bronco Henry and now I'm losing my brother. And he immediately starts just berating them. Terrorizing them. Terrorizing them. Yeah. And so the son is like in sort of a, a line pregnant with meaning. He says, you, I'm not going to let this happen to you anymore, Mom. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you won't have to waste away drinking. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Plemons is no help. He's just like completely... I, he loves Kirsten Dunst, He loves for Kirsten sure. Dunst, but he just like, he just like almost doesn't understand and that his brother is... And he's busy. A, he's a, away a lot. Yeah, he's doing away business, a lot. business, whatever he's doing. He sort of just doesn't... He's just kind of unaware that his brother is a total asshole. Just like I think that I think he's actually afraid of his brother. Yeah, but he's kind of numb to it. He's numb and he's completely incapable. And Kirsten Dunst is completely incapable of standing up for herself. Mm-hmm. But this effeminate boy in Cody Smith McPhee actually stands up for himself all the time. All the time. He doesn't like being berated, but he's like very capable of like looking Benedict Cumberbatch dead in the eye and being like, uh, "Whatever, dude. Like, you can berate me, but like." I'm cool with myself. He is such a strong character. Mm -hmm. There is, I think it would be very easy to, and this is of course putting aside the fact that I I haven't read the work that this is based on. So this all might be from there, but it would be very easy to have a character like this and really make them the victim, really make, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of guy. I mean, he is soft-spoken, but soft-spoken so gentle he's getting hurt he doesn't stand up for himself like he poor poor thing and as i'm watching it of course you're like i feel bad for this for this kid like he doesn't deserve being you know terrorized by this psycho who's got a lot of you know subconscious layered issues going on right but he confronts it all head on there i found his character very surprising yes absolutely i very surprising cosign everything you just said 100 percent and I think it is this quality that earns Benedict Cumberbatch's respect, where he's like, oh, maybe this kid, like, you know, sort of in spite of himself, he wants to sort of mentor this kid. Well, there's this, that pivotal scene at the, the camp 
and uh you know the the son is walking up and down he is walking to to one end of this essentially row of tents full mm-hmm. of of these other cow hands yes and they are hooting and hollering mm-hmm. at him they are they're catcalling him mm-hmm. they're harassing him and there's a part where Benedict Cumberbatch calls him over mm-hmm. and he walks directly over looks at him right in the eye and says you wanted me yeah and it is this scene where Benedict Cumberbatch decides okay mm-hmm. there's there's something interesting about this boy and i th- i think it's also one of the first glimpses of the possible double meaning of their relationship yes. which is like you wanted me you wanted in me. what in what sense do you want me so i actually literally i hit pause when that happened and i was like wow okay this this is what this movie is doing right. they're they're going for it so now let's return to the Jane scene Campion the did write it by the way oh okay great 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 fuck yeah women writing screenplays we go back let's go back to the scene in the river where we find that Benedict Cumberbatch. This is the true reveal. This is the, of the true nature reveal. Of their relationship. And Cody Smith McPhee stumbles upon Benedict Cumberbatch in the river, or or in a glen by the river, sort of taking Bronco Billy's what Bronco is his name? Henry. Bronco Henry's scarf, <laughs> which is a really funny name. Yeah. Oh, Bronco Henry. Oh, Bronco Henry. And he's taking Bronco Henry's scarf and sort of erotically rubbing himself with it and masturbating. We see this, and it's like, oh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch had homosexual feelings for Bronco Henry. We don't know whether they consummated it. We never find out, but there was clearly... I think that they imply that they did, that they were in some way together. Okay. Based on... My reading of that is coming from the convo later on, which I think is happening when... Maybe Benedict Cumberbatch is like, he's doing more of the rope weaving. Um, but yeah. He, Another great th- scene. This is when Cody Smith-McPhee is like... Um, this is the did he teach you how to ride conversation mm-hmm. and Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch kind of pauses and he is processing a double meaning and everything that they're then saying mm-hmm. during the sequence is so layered there there's yes. so much go and and to me great screenwriting that was I thought that it was kind of implied that there had been something physical between them and, and it's very clear that uh, McPhee's character immediately grasps he knows right he sees for he He knows benedict cumberbatch's interiority Mm -hmm. better than benedict cumberbatch knows it himself Mm -hmm. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is he's he's, you know he's accessing that sort of like uh, for lack of like a better term like effeminate energy and because he's more comfortable with it he sees things immediately that benedict cumberbatch is like incapable of grasping about himself. Like one of my favorite scenes is uh, he's like, well, Bronco Henry, he looked at that hill in the distance. What do you see in that hill? Bronco Henry saw and Cody Smith McPhee goes, oh, it looks like a dog. And And Benedict Cumberbatch is like, you saw that? You You saw that just now? There's almost like a record scratch kind of moment. And it's just like, oh, like you, like you're able to access that part of yourself that sort of like creative imaging that like it took me like two weeks to see the dog in that hill and that to me is also the like okay we're on the same page Mm -hmm. or at least benedict cumberbatch believes that they're on the same page 
And that was like a trust, a real trust building moment. And then there's this other moment that I quite like where, well, we see Cody Smith McPhee, he's, he's studying to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so he, he's, he's, he's caught a rabbit and you think, oh, the movies like wants you to and think at first, like, like, oh, oh God, he's so like a little gay guy who likes rabbits. And it's just like, no, he's dissecting that rabbit. He's doing business. He's working. So later they see another rabbit and Benedict Cumberbatch is like harassing it. And it's like, oh, let's see, you know, if we can run it out. And the rabbit runs out and Cody Smith Murphy grabs it and he's just like, oh, its leg is broken. Better break its neck. Thinking like, oh, this kid can't break an animal's neck. And he's just like, does it. No problem. He doesn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. He breaks animals' necks all the time. He's a doctor. Like he's, he's, not, he's got he, He'll do what has to be done. He'll do what has to be done. And he does do what he feels has to be done. Yes, sir. Um, but that, again, earns Cumberbatch's respect. So their relationship grows. But before we get to the climax of the film, I would like to question interrogate uh, an, another feminine urge perhaps which is what do we make of and maybe maybe this doesn't exist but is there such a thing as the feminine urge to make male characters homosexual i think that there's a lot to be said let's talk this. about it so, because why does why does Benedict Cumberbatch have to be gay? Is this movie just as strong if he's not? No. Okay. Because tell, tell there me why. is the element of forbiddenness and taboo. I don't think that the movie works without Benedict Cumberbatch being somehow limited by society hashtag society that he can't express or access certain parts of himself because they are so off limits. And I don't know what that would be if it wasn't about queerness. I, I understand that it's more dramatically interesting, I guess, to make them gay, but aren't all those same sort of like prohibitions and sort of like patriarchal restrictions present in straight men? Like, I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is, you know, gay in this film, but he he's his cohort of like 14 other cowhands are just as sort of like toxically masculine. And I will, I, I think, they're I not think that all a, gay. A, that a big part of it is the adversarial relationship between Kirsten Dunst and Benedict Cumberbatch. And I don't think that that would exist if if he weren't queer, because there is this this woman is stealing my brother away from me. And so, yeah, there's there's not like a weird, there's not like an incest angle. That's not what I'm mm -mm. saying. But it is saying this 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 woman mm -hmm. get can have something that I cannot have. Right. And I think that that is a big chunk of it. There's a scene after it might be like right after the uh, you know Jesse Plemons introduces her as his wife, and Bandit Cumberbatch goes out to the stable and he starts beating this female horse in the face mm, mm -hmm. and is saying, you bitch, you bitch. And just like, just going, just going crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I think that if he, I think that if he were straight, that has a totally different feeling and tone to it. Because I think that if he, if this character were interested in women, there would be more of a, a sexual threat to Kirsten Dunst. And I don't think that that's what's going on here. It is yeah, it's not, and it and it's not present in like the images. It's not like, present, yeah. in, like, even in the scene where um, 
she is practicing piano for, yeah, for the like, government and he's got his banjo. And he's just like shredding the banjo. Shredding on the he's banjo. He's just like, I can play music <laughs> like way better than me, which is hilarious. He's, he's really going for it. Yeah. And she, there's, the scene doesn't make us feel like, oh, she's afraid because she's alone in the house with this right, guy, with this right, man. Right. It's, she's fearful because this guy fucking hates her and he's outperforming her in an artistic way. There's a something there. Yeah, you're right. He's he's also like an educated man. He's highly educated. He, he went to Yale. He went to Yale, top marks, Jesse Plemons, didn't even make it to college. He chose to be a cowhand. He chose to be a cowhand, perhaps because of his mentor, Bronco Henry. That's true. I guess like an educated person wouldn't, well, would be less likely, I suppose, if they were straight. They would have gone the path of like the National Review nerd, you know, yes. or it's like yeah. I'm a I'm a, a an educated conservative, mm-hmm. you know, but and- <laughs> I'm a straight man and I wear bow ties, you yep, know, but yep, yep, I, yep. But I, you know, uh, but instead because he was gay, he was just like I have to do the most masculine thing, which the is be a fucking thing. ranch hand, be a ranch living out, being <sighs> all right, smelling, that's convincing to me. being stinky, never taking a bath. Yeah. That is a pretty big focus of this is. Them being like, hey, you have to clean yourself up a little bit, and mm-hmm. him fucking refusing. Yeah, okay. I'm just saying, okay, I, I, we'll put a pin in it for later episodes. I just feel like <laughs> women don't like to admit that male friendships exist sometimes, it feels like. like they're, I just feel like women are often searching for the queerness mm-hmm. in the relationships in the relations between men. And like, sometimes I'm like, I mean, obviously, yes, sometimes queerness is present. Sometimes queerness is absolutely I present. I mean, homoeroticism has a long history. No, no, no denying that homoeroticism is a part of straight relationships. But sometimes I just feel like, and maybe it's just because it's more dramatically interesting to just like make it present. But, you know, sometimes I'm just kind of like, do they have oh, to be gay? Okay. You know. Oh, like, I was mean, like, oh, what? is it put all this gay shit in my face? I, no, I know I, that's I, not your your. Just, I know I'm not saying, I, but you know. No, I, I actually think that a part of it is that because of the way that we, by we I mean women, are conditioned to understand the thought process of men, and that men are very sexually motivated, that they mm. almost can't have like men the portrayal in society is like men can't have uh, a platonic relationship with women because they're they've always got sex on their mind they've always got there's always going to be that element to it and so it's then hard i think to imagine a situation in which there are two men or you know male friendship that that there's not that element of it whatsoever because that is such a key part of how we understand, you know, the male psyche. That's such an interesting point. I think also you can flip it and think about the way that men use lesbian relationships Mm. in their film or novels or whatever. And that's really more for like sexual titillation. Well, sometimes it's sexual titillation, but also sometimes I feel like it's, it's in search of that interiority that they maybe feel they they don't represent. Mm. Um, women be having feelings. Women be having feelings. And if you write about two women having feelings, well, maybe it's easier for you to imagine two women having feelings than a man and a woman having feelings. Or maybe you feel like yeah. you're not entitled to those feelings. Or I you think know, another dimension yeah. of it is, if we're talking about the, the feelings part of it, is men are 
supposed to be or often are very secretive with their emotions uh, like towards women and don't really display mm. this part of them and so there's almost this feeling of okay so he whoever he is can't emote like that with me a woman but he can probably emote like that with other men like where is that where are those emotions uh, going if they're yeah, not yeah, being yeah, shared yeah. with me they must be being shared with each other that's very intimate and so you know the, you know they're on and they're for yeah it's interesting because like i know men who are are like that who are very much more emotional with other men and then i know men who like don't emote in front of other men mm. so you know it's just it takes all kinds I guess, oh sure but... i mean like and none of this is to say that this is how things are but right. This is how I think things are manifesting in, yeah. in the film. Or it was, it's, it's these possible ways. You know, these are mm. clues. These are just, you know, we're just, we're talking about it. We're trying to figure mm-hmm. it out, you know? We're kind of like detectives, but you don't really care about solving the case. It's just more about observing clues and saying, do with this what you will. Right. So let's move to the final act of Power of the Dog, which is, I think, the most Patricia Highsmithy, <clears throat> if I can. You may. Part of this film which is that Cody Smith McPhee has taken anthrax hide from a cow mm-hmm. this is this is done quite well actually it's done very it sounds well. very convoluted but he's taken hide from an anthrax cow and they, they set this up in the film really well mm-hmm. I think like the first scene where we see any of the cows it's like that one's sick it's got anthrax don't right. touch and he strips it, he strips the hide off the, the diseased cow because he knows that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be making rope he's weaving this from rope cowhide. and he specifically is like i'm making this rope for you when i've made this rope i'm gonna teach you all that i know about out. being a cow hand about being a cow you can't see this but i'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. about being a cow hand right and and the rope is that has like there's like this bdsm element it's as he it, makes lots it, of close-ups on his hands the yeah and handling it and mm-hmm. the sound of the leather and you know it's very sensual it's very sensual it's very cool um very but cool in making this rope with this anthrax hide and he has a wound on his hand he has a wound on his hand and he becomes ill basically overnight and and dies yeah and in one of the like most touching scenes of the movie i think he in his sickness, he tries to go out and give the rope. To... Because he's seeing like, well, what about the boy? Yeah, he's like, he's We're, so concerned. I need to find yeah. the boy and give him this rope. It's yeah. done, but he's dying. It's too late. Yeah. He's dead. And then we see Cody Smith McPhee reading the Bible about the power of the dog, and the verse is mm-hmm. some. It's it's something to life. save me from the sword and my darling from the power of the dog. This, uh, hell yeah, you had it right on well, the tip of your dome. The tip of my, tip you of my were raised si- religious. My, <laughs> my, the tip of my Cinerama dome experience. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's, it's sad because I sort of thought it was a little ambiguous in the sense of, you know, I feel like there was a way that we could have redeemed. Um, Absolutely. I think that that. Benedict Cumberbatch's character without killing him. The, the surprise, I was shocked that he died at the end because it felt like they were on that redemption yes. and it was going to be like, oh, ending on a kind of hopeful note of like on, like onwards and upwards. Mm-hmm. It does end on a hopeful note for Kirsten Dunst because, you know, Cody Smith-McPhee has eliminated the threat. Yes. It's now, it's now over. I'm saving my mother. This and is what I'm he, doing. He seems fairly remorseless that, that this has happened. He Just, shows no yeah. emotions about any of the animals mm-hmm. that he kills or that mm-hmm. he deals with. He, and she shows no remorse about 
killing this guy who made his mother an alcoholic, mm-hmm. knowing that his father killed himself while being an alcoholic. Right. And there is so much hatred inside of him. Yeah, despite the fact that he is constitutionally very different than yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch. I think it's a very, it's a very, it's... I think it shows such movie. a beautiful range of masculine emotion mm-hmm. without without there's no scene where Benedict Cumberbatch is going he's not doing a lot like right. everything is so restrained mm-hmm. and it feels I don't know there's something very tempered well, about it, it if we're talking about interiority sort of like the the sensitive one can be just as ruthless yes as the ruthless one who can be just as sensitive as beautifully said the sensitive one yeah. and that's good that's good stuff folks that's good that's, movie stuff that's good movie stuff that's literary movie making we love to see it feels it. so nice to talk about movies that we like and think that and think are good start to finish it's really nice to enjoy a movie and not have this feeling of well why'd you do that yeah although like maybe that was the experience pissed. of some people who watched the lost daughter and, lost didn't daughter, get and it. Then i think i think another thing if we're talking about general audience reactions a lot of people were just like baffled by the ending of this film which i didn't think was very ambiguous at all but um, i thought it was surprising but to, the, the, to the extent that netflix had to like release an internal article that explained the ending oh, ending, they, I, ending of power of the dog explained i haven't seen any of that what, what did how did they what did they say in their article uh they were just like yeah we know this is confusing but uh <laughs> Like, yeah, sorry this didn't end with like a gunfight at the OK Corral, but uh, first of all, how dare you? Tombstone is great. Don't be dragging gunfights oh, at the OK Corral. Oh, certainly not. But I'm just saying, you know, there's a time and a place. Yeah, yeah. Um, this isn't a, this isn't a shoot 'em up, Clint Eastwood, you know, western right. kind of movie. And you might expect that going into it. Right. You would be wrong. You would be wrong. But um, uh, you might expect that. This isn't the same family as, and it's it's a very easy comparison to make, but there's a lot that can be said between these two. This is in the same family as Brokeback Mountain in terms of yeah. Western's interiority based on uh, existing literary works. And queerness. And queerness and people not getting it or misinterpreting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the feeling of having to hide or conceal parts of oneself, which is, I guess, like kind of inherent in any almost any queer narrative. True. Uh, but I'm ready for the next wave of queer narratives. What do you think that's going to be? Oh, I think it's going to be messy. It's going to be I mean, like, euphoria? what is... I think euphoria. I feel euphoria is Which is so unfortunate. It's like, I don't want that to represent me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I refuse. But, uh... My queer narrative preference is all about repression. <laughs> <laughs> Stay repressed as we, long as possible because it's way more interesting. We, we, we've done repression a lot, though. We've done repression. It's been done. Well, okay, so it's possible that the next wave is about trauma. Oh, trauma. So maybe yeah. we'll talk about trauma in the next uh it's it's, it's a broad category but there's a up. lot there we said we were gonna do last duel so maybe we can trauma talk about it a little bit there um yeah that would be good i like that a lot trauma yeah trauma and i think that that's the note that we're gonna end on trauma trauma guys hopefully this podcast wasn't too traumatic for you to listen to uh it was a little meandering but i think that we basically got our our licks in um, I don't know what that phrase means. You know, but like when you get, get, sure. out, get your yeehaw. Yeah, yeehaw. Exactly. I'm trying to be You're trying to stay on theme. Yeah, trying to stay on theme. Right on. Great job, guys. Great job, everyone. You did an awesome job. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. And uh, we'll see you next time see you next on time. Movie Podcast Event. Gelly and Jelly.